when you wanted to look up, it's, does anyone know where it comes from or what it is? Oh, did you turn it on? Thank you. Yeah, the, from the Maccabees and the restoration of the temple against two. Yeah, Antiochus Epiphanes, or whatever you pronounce his name. So you can look that up in 2 Maccabees 10. Okay, I believe that's the reference for it if you wanted to look that up later on your own. That'd be a good thing to do. We just had that over the weekend, Saturday for a reading. Maybe. Oh, really? Yeah, far out. Um, uh, yeah, we got a lot to cover, and I'll be honest, I want to be honest with you guys. I'm really having a hard time getting this particular series uh, to kind of come together and be able to give enough information to you. Because the more research I do, the bigger it gets, which is a problem. I've now read uh, two books, like whole books, completely, and many parts of other books. And it just seems like it just keeps unraveling this gargantuous monstrosity. So um, be patient because what we are doing is laying a necessary foundation. Okay? And we are going to spend some time towards the end today, hopefully. And definitely next class on particulars about the three main feasts of Israel. Okay? I'm not going to be able to cover the uh, post-Mosaic feasts and all that like Hanukkah. And that's why I am giving you guys some reading for homework. What you have today is your new one. The other ones I gave last time, but this is today's thing that I wanted you to have. Um, it's probably, I would say, somewhat similar to my brother's little handout that I gave you last time on measurements of time in the Bible, but it's a little more maybe explicit or what do you want to say, story-like and things like that. Again, you know, better format. This is just the, the nuts and bolts of it, and he kind of talks about it. Um, this is coming from uh, Edersheim, who was that guy I was quoting last time, uh, Alfred Edersheim, who's a Christian convert, he's a Jewish convert to Christianity. Um, so... Uh, this is your homework. Just go read through this. Did you guys do your homework for tonight? Who did it? Really? I see a raise of hands, honestly. Ooh, not bad. Was it intelligible at all? That's okay. Now you know what I feel like when I'm preparing for this class. A couple of these didn't seem to actually make reference to what? Okay. Yeah, if there's any mistakes, then let me know. It's my brother's fault, not mine. I can tell him. Okay. All right. Are we all together here? Come on now, Lewis. Yeah, so the psalm didn't line up. The, didn't the psalm line didn't line up? Yeah. No. It was 55, okay. not 54. 55. Okay. Ah, uh, 55. 55-18? Yeah, 55 18. Mm -hmm. And what else didn't line up? That's the only one I found. Anybody else find anything that didn't line up? But I admit, I didn't do Psalm 129. I didn't look there. Okay. I didn't go all So, anyways, that's for your own betterment. And the, the, as we're going to talk about today, the more we know this stuff, uh, and like I said last time, I'm in your camp. I, I, I'm really struggling to learn myself. Um, and the more we understand this stuff, the more we're going to understand what we're doing as Christians. And so it's vitally important. Uh, the road we're taking here, but unfortunately it's not going to get us to the end. I mean, we're not going to be talking about every detail of the Old Testament as fulfillment in Christ because it just would take us all year uh, or more. So, um, remind me what we talked about last time. 
Well, we talked about fulfillment. We talked about the Old Testament festival cycle in general terms, mostly generally about Torah and temple. Remember I talked to you about the two mountain traditions? Okay, Sinai and Zion, and how those two mountain traditions really give Israel her identity. Okay, and I had said that in both the Torah and the temple, we have to look at what the goal was, what the fulfillment was, what the perfection was, what the law was about in the first place. And I made reference to Aquinas' division of law into what three types of law? Okay, moral. Give me an example of moral. Oh yeah, that shall not kill or honor your father and your mother. What's next? Ceremonial. And judicial. And Aquinas says ceremony and judicial are changeable depending on how or the state of man in relationship to the end of the law. So what's the goal of the ceremonial law, Jennifer? What's the goal of the ceremonial law? To bring about a ceremony that covers certain aspects to make it fulfilled. Oh, come on. That's a bunch of nonsense. When we're talking about ceremonial law, we're talking about the worship of God. Okay? What's the goal of, the, of law, of all these laws, anyways? But the liturgy, no? To bring one of Yeah, the ceremony is the liturgy. So, in particular, in the ceremonial law, it talks about man's relationship with God. Judicial talks about man's relationship with man. Okay? Um, and saying these things, like, for example, how many lambs are sacrificed on a particular feast, is determined by God for the good of Israel that she may come to fulfillment or perfection. In relation to what the law wanted her to become, whenever. Okay, and what was that? What is that fulfillment or perfection? What was the reason for the for the law? That man may become what? Say united with God. Yeah, united with God. The covenant is the center or the fulfillment, the the reality of the covenant of man and God joined together is the reality which all the law was pointing to. Okay. Um so, why a new covenant? Why a new law? Why do we have an old covenant? I mean, look, it seems to me... How about this? What's the goal of the new covenant? Because the old covenant applied to the chosen people. The new covenant applies to all mankind. Oh, well, okay, but then you're going to say that the Old Testament people didn't need Jesus. <coughs> no, I'm not saying that. No. All right, I know you're not going to say that, but that's what it sounds like to me. No, because the, okay, as the Old Testament is written, right, the Jews see themselves as chosen, right? We have that by revelation. And um, they see themselves as set apart from the peoples of the world. One of the messages of the New Testament is that salvation is to apply to all peoples. All so right. from the Jews for There's, which Savior is to come for the whole world. That's yeah. Gabriel to Mary, right? Yeah, okay, I understand that. But what I'm saying is that, I'll tell you what the goal of the New Covenant is. It's union with God. What was the goal of the Old Covenant? Union with God. So why do we have an Old Covenant and New Covenant? 
Okay, and, and there is this aspect, yes, but I wouldn't say that's the, the real heart of the matter. Okay, because then we could say Israel already had what then all people receive. Okay, you see what I'm saying? I think what resonated with me was the example that you gave of your daughter. Mm -hmm. how, how you give her rules at the stages that you find her. And I think that that's a nice metaphor for how God has treated us as his people. When we were ready in, in particular stages, he, he met us where we were in those stages. So that new covenant is in a new place. Mm -hmm. where man is prepared. <laughs> it's no mistake that he comes where there's travel and people can move around and that message can get, be spread out. Right. There's no mistake that the Roman Empire allows for that when he comes. Right. And then from there, it's, it, there's an explosion. There are Jews everywhere, so those Jews can take that message from their own synagogues in a place that they understand already and spread it out. Okay, but we want to make sure that we're not talking just geographically. I know you're not. More importantly, when we're talking about the state of the people, where the people are, we're not talking about simply lo locality, but the state of their soul, right? Romans 3, mm -hmm. right? So the old covenant, the old covenant proves what Paul writes in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, mm -hmm. right? Where he writes about where there is no sin without a law, mm -hmm. right? So one of the things about the Old Covenant is proves that all sin and fall short of the glory of God is only in Christ that we can be changed. Okay, good. So hold on to that, and I'm not going to let you guys... Uh, <laughs> I want you guys, some of you other people to get involved in this too. So uh, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 31. By the way, as you're, well, as you're turning now, I'm going to make some announcements. That I forgot to make my announcements at the beginning. Uh, we have coming up this Sunday evening, Lepanto. It's going to be in this room. It's going to be kind of full, I think. And we have to be in this room. We can't be in it. It is going to be full because, well, it may be full because the ninth grade class at the Heights. They're getting extra credit if they attend. Oh, really? Yes. And they're doing I'm like part of outside. Well, get here early because I'm afraid that it really is going to get full. And so uh, it's, we don't have a choice. We Why have to be here. Why did you join the group? Why? In this room? I just have a Trust me on that. All right. And then we have coming up our Advent retreat. Listen, listen. The Advent retreat. Let everybody know in the parish and all your friends that you know here. And you don't have to be just a member of the parish. You can come. He's fantastic. Don't miss that. So take that flyer back there. It's coming up. Uh, not this weekend, but next weekend. Okay? And uh, and all, this is my reminder that Mons Bishop uh, sent a letter thanking us for our donations when he came to give his talk. I think we collected $1,300 that evening. Isn't that fantastic? So I have a Beretta because uh, I, when I went to Rome, I bought it and touched it to the tomb of St. Peter. So third class relic. Anyways, it was an excuse to buy a Beretta. Uh, and finally, I got our final confirmation that yes, we received a donation of $2,000 for our chairs, more, doubling what we, what we collected. So when you come back from Christmas, I promise... New chairs. Yeah, new chairs, new tables, new desks, new everything. So, okay. Yeah, lock them down.
And that new covenant will be distinguished from the old covenant how? By getting rid of circumcision? No, it will place his law within their hearts. The law which was present to remember our Lord's words that we read last time. That he is going to fulfill the law. Nothing will be done away with. He is there to fulfill it. And Jeremiah says that the difference between the old law and what is coming is that he will take the law which is exterior, which is written on stone, and he will make it part of what it is to be a man. He will place it in our hearts as part of who we are. No longer as an exterior command, but as an interior principle, which not guides our actions by saying, I should do this or shouldn't do that, but by literally launching us in that direction, by allowing us to do it, by giving us the power within us to do the law instead of just doing the law by exterior, you know, and struggling to follow it within us. The struggle now is gone, and that principle comes alive in us in the new law. Okay? So, you know, then yes. the natural law not, not exist in the Old Testament. Ah, it did. So what is it? What is this new law placed in the heart of man? What is it? Sanctifying grace. Exactly. What sanctifying grace? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of God himself within us. Um, I have way too many books tonight and I'm working on them here. <laughs> The old law conduced to this end. I'm sorry. The old law is indeed good since it leads Israel toward the supernatural perfection that God has ordained for human beings. The old law conduced to this end. Remember, we talked about end not as the ceasing of action or the ceasing of being, but as the fulfillment or perfection of it. The old law conduced to this end by forbidding sinful acts and by restraining disordered desires, which are opposed to the perfection of the rational creature. On the other hand, Aquinas notes, the old law was not sufficient in itself to achieve the supernatural end which perfects the rational creature by enabling him or her to share in the very life of God by means of knowing and loving. For this end is to, to be achieved not for this end to be achieved, not only must exterior acts be ordered, 
but also human beings must receive an interior principle that will be able to direct human acts at their root toward the supernatural end of knowing and loving the triune God. It's no longer a matter of whether I was circumcised or not on the eighth day to fulfill the law itself. What matters is that the reason I was circumcising on the eighth day within me now comes forth. I'm acting not simply because I'm told to do it, but because within me I'm literally coming alive with it. That is not a good way to say it. We'll keep talking about it, okay? Does that mean that there was no conscience before Pentecost? That there was no internal compass before Pentecost? It was, I would say there was no supernatural conscience within man. A supernatural, not natural, supernatural. Because what is given to us at Pentecost is, in a sense, well, it is that law within us. We'll talk about this. We'll talk about that. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. New Testament. Verse 8. Let's go. Don't start, start reading yet, though. Come on. All right. Start reading. Colossians chapter 2, verse, let's go with verse uh, 8. Fran, you want to read that for us? I don't have the right Bible. Oh, yes, you do. It's okay. That's right. No, my words are... They're different. That's okay. It says the same thing. Chapter 2. Yeah. Verse 9. Verse 8. Let's read verse 8. See to it that no one deceives you by philosophy and vain deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elements of the world, and not according to Christ. Keep going. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and in him who is the head of every principality and power you have received of that fullness. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good. We, what it, well, we said that the old covenant was all about our union with God, man's union with God. We said that the new covenant is all about our union with God. We find something very unique about the state of man when we look at Jesus Christ. And what is that? Said so that man goes through all stages in the Old Testament in his relationship to God. When we enter into the New Testament and we read about Jesus Christ, what do we meet? It's unique. It's different. In Jesus? In Jesus. It's the perfection of man, right? Yeah. That's who we were intended to be. We find man perfectly united to God because he's both. Good. Look, as St. Paul says, I know you might think, oh, this is obvious, but... Think oftentimes we look at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in very similar manners in the sense that well, one's written on law and the other one's found in the church's declarations about everything. So what's the difference? The New Covenant is the gift of the life of God in man. And primarily the New Covenant is found not in the, in the declarations of the church as declarations of the church, 
but primarily is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself, I've said this to you guys before, he himself is the new covenant. He's the new covenant because he accomplishes in who he is what the old covenant was all about. I told you, I talk, and I read you from uh, Edersheim, we need to unify our vision of the Old Testament and New Testament. To unify our vision of the Old Covenant and New Covenant. And stop looking at them as different covenants, different unions, but as accomplishing or looking to accomplish the exact same thing. And that comes to the fullness of reality in the person of Jesus Christ. What we lost in Adam, we regain in Christ. We lost the life of God in Adam. When God becomes man, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Does that make sense? Right, so that's uh, Hebrews, but uh, what I was thinking of was in Romans, Paul makes the argument about Christ being the type of the new man, the second Adam. Mm-hmm. Right, so that if all of the others, all after Adam, conform to him, right, because Adam was made for union with God and mm-hmm. chose against it, Christ is completely union with God and he is the new type mm-hmm. to which we are to conform mm-hmm. right, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, back right. from being plunged into his death. Okay, right. That's why we talk about Christ as our as our head. He recapitulates or reheads up humanity, just as we all felt received a nature separated from God from Adam. So in Christ, if we can join Him, our humanity will be joined to God Himself. And in fact, in Christ, that reality is already accomplished. In Christ, the Torah, the law, is walking around in the flesh. If we look at the person of Jesus Christ and watch him, we will see the law. He is the Torah. Because he is the wisdom of God who knows the end of the law. He is the word of God who has proclaimed the law. And he now has taken on flesh. The Torah has become incarnate in Jesus Christ. It is now written upon his heart. The second aspect we looked at that gave identity to Israel was the temple. And what made the temple the temple? It was God. That God dwelt there. The temple is the temple because it is the dwelling place of God. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. When we look at Jesus Christ, we see the temple. He is the true temple where the true worship of God is taking place. Cardinal Ratzinger says, The covenant is a relationship. God's gift of himself to man but also man's response to God. Man's response to the God who is good to him is love. And loving God means worshiping him. Okay, Loving God means worshiping. We talk about loving our neighbor versus loving God. That's what, we call, that's what worship is. 
We're just putting a funny name on it that we don't understand half the time. Okay? Thus begins the spiritual creation of the covenant, without which the created cosmos would be an empty shell. Creation and history, creation and history and worship are in reciprocity. Creation looks toward the covenant. We talked about this last time. All of creation is looking toward the seventh day in Genesis. Creation looks toward the covenant, but the covenant completes creation and does not simply exist alongside it. Now, if worship, or we could say love, is the soul of the covenant, then it not only saves mankind, but is also meant to draw the whole of reality into communion with God. We're talking about the festal cycle of the Jews. And when we talk about the festal cycle of the Jews, just as much as we talk about the festal cycle of the Christians, at the heart and the center of the feasts of the Jews was covenant. And at the heart of covenant is God. He just said, worship. The center of every one of the feasts of the Jews. It's not a matter of dancing or a matter of what parades or none, none of that. It's all at the heart and center of every festival of the Jews, an opportunity for Israel to worship God and therefore to, to uh, enter into the covenant as best they can. In fact, that's true about our own Christian festival cycle also. It's an opportunity for us in our lives to enter into the worship of God, which enters us into the covenant of God. The two becoming one. So that no longer we can just say that Jesus Christ, in Him, the Torah is incarnate. But in us, the Torah has become incarnate. It is, become, it is written in our hearts. So what I hear you saying, this is a question, mm -hmm. what I hear you saying is, is that the new covenant was meant to and should change our hearts to where, to where we want to do all the things of the law. The law commanded us to do things and it's not just enough or it's not perfection to do those things just because we may fear the law. But to, do, but to do those things or not do the forbidden things because we have this love of God within us and we want to do them. And, or, and if we don't do them, then we offend ourselves. Part, yeah, it's partially true. But at the same time, I could say that there were many believing Jews that didn't want to do the law. What is fundamentally different about a Jew following the law circumcising on the eighth day or whatever it might be is that what we believe that is unique in Christianity it is no longer a human being that is acting or simply a human being that is acting but it is now God acting on both sides of the relationship we are divinized in Christ so that now the relationship between man and God in a sense, is not a relationship just between the creator and creature, but a relationship within the inner life of God himself. Our actions become salvific 
Because God is the one acting in us. Okay? We're here now, finally, I would say, at the edge of really being able to talk about the feasts themselves. Although we do have to talk about a few other things. But we're getting to the heart of the feast as worship. Come on in. Cardinal Ratzinger says that the heart of the covenant is worship. And we go one step farther further and say, at the heart of worship is what? At least for the Jews, it's the heart of worship for us too. What thing, what are we faced with every time we look at Jewish worship that oftentimes for us is a very offensive? Bloody sacrifice. Sacrifice. And it's here that we, I think, meet the most difficult point and the most essential point for understanding the feasts of the Jews and our feasts. And I wish I had left you with this last time. I drove home going, oh, I wish I had left this question. And it's this. What pleasure is God supposed to take in sacrificing an innocent animal? Cardinal Ratzinger just said that worship is the heart of the covenant and therefore it is, in, it is in worship that man is saved. Salvation consists in worship. But at the heart of worship is sacrifice. How is the slaughtering of 13 lambs supposed to save my soul? And what kind of God are we talking about anyways? What kind of God are we talking about that requires the sacrifice, the death, the murder of his own son in order to appease him? Christians. He chose it. That's ah, his fault. <laughs> no, he, chose, he chose to offer himself. That's definitely true. Then let's back up one. That's a big, that's a good answer. What about the lambs? What about the poor lambs? That it was a prefigure to what Jesus was going to do. Three cursing. Yeah, but look, they're supposed to do something. I mean, they're, they're out there. Sat- Look, I, I've read accounts of, they've done like studies of what it must have looked like in Jerusalem yeah. during the sacrifices, like during Passover. Literally creeks of blood running down the, the valleys as they walked up to Jerusalem. And just rivers of blood flowing down from the temple. That's how much blood was being spilled. What kind of God is that? What pleasure is God supposed to take in that? What is it supposed to accomplish? Wasn't, wasn't part of and the requirement of the bloody sacrifices um, started with the golden calf, and this was when they were required to offer sacrifice then, was to do away with the Egyptian idols? That I know that's, par- that's partially true, but who else sacrificed animals before that? What's that? Everybody before them were out there sacrificing animals. Right, but these were the animals they that they used to worship. As God. There's an aspect of that, but also there's animal sacrifice before that, so we got to deal with that. The Passover. What about the Passover? The animal, you know, they had to smear the. Yeah. That's what I'm asking, Mon. What kind of God 
years than to slaughter an innocent lamb and wipe the blood over the doorpost. I mean, we would be horrified. In fact, it's, it is a common, even today, among the uh, Melkites, among the Lebanese, uh, where I go to church, that when a big occasion happens in your family, you slaughter a lamb and you take its blood and wipe it over the doorpost. Mm. Yeah. Give me something, Ed. To, to have this relationship, you have to be willing to give up things of value, of yeah, material value, in order to have a total relationship. And what could be possibly more to give up than a life? And of course, using an animal as a proxy life. But by God showing us that the ultimate thing that he can do to show his love is to give his life. You're, you're on the right track. But I think that the, there's still the issue, really. I mean, you're right, ultimately. But there's still the issue of what, what pleasure is God really supposed to get out of this animal being sacrificed? So I want to hold on to your thought, and, just, and we'll leave that. You're going to see that ultimately you're right. But we need to flesh it out a little bit more. Can I say something about Jesus Christ being, so to speak, slaughtered? I think that he was uh, killed in such a way so that mankind could never say, well, God, you never knew what it felt like to suffer here on earth. Well, that's, that's partially true. St. Paul says he, he is able to, what's the word he uses? Empathize. Um, empathize with us in every aspect. So there's that, there's that, but again, let's hold on to it. I'm going to read you from Aidan Nichols, who, uh, in fact, I think Brett Skinner, no, he doesn't, but Aidan Nichols is uh, quite a uh, liturgical scholar, um, very well respected, young man. He says, and I I'm going to read this to you, and I want you guys to interpret it for me. From the passion and death, we must be careful in any account of the sacrifice of the Messiah not to separate the resurrection and ascension. In the Mosaic sacrifices, the immolation or death was not the climax. The purpose of the immolation was not to destroy life, but to transform it in such a way that it could be the medium of atonement. It was for this that blood was sprinkled on the altar and the people at Sinai. That is why in the letter to the Hebrews, the author treats Jesus' life and death as preliminary to his heavenly priestly activity in his risen and ascended state when he comes to sit at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tent, which is set up not by man, but by the Lord. Dave, what's he saying? Uh, so, so don't separate it from the resurrection and ascension. Right? Why? Hold on. Somebody else. In the Mosaic sacrifices, the immolation or death was not the climax. And I would just push, I'm pushing you on this issue because I think we see that. That the whole point is that we slaughter this animal and somehow appease God by the death of the animal. Aiden Nichols is saying that's not the case. That the sacrifices of the Mosaic law were not about death. Okay. Any thoughts? What about the union with God? So what's about what? What's that? What about the union with God? What about it? That that was the logical conclusion. 
You mean that's what it's supposed to accomplish? Yeah. You're right. He said, "Well, I, we need to constantly remind ourselves when you're looking at these at these feasts of the Jews to constantly remind ourselves." What's it all about? What is God trying to accomplish? Because oftentimes what we're looking at in 2007 doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But if we understand what's underlying what's going on, the reality that God is trying to accomplish in man, suddenly we can start to ask a question, what is it about this thing that accomplishes that goal? And our goal is union of God and man. How is it that the slaughter of a lamb can bring about in some way, to start to bring about in the heart of man, a union with the life of God himself? Do you see the problem and the difficulty? Okay, we have to answer that in order to see the old covenant and the new covenant as one. Unless we're going to make God out to be two distinct gods. One of the old law and one of the new. And he changes his mind and no longer wants us to slaughter innocent animals. But he really liked it back then. Okay? okay. This may be somewhat from the, the encyclical I just read this week, but if you truly have hope in eternal life, then the sacrificing of life on in, in this realm is, is proof that you believe in eternal life, that this is this is temporal and it doesn't. So that the idea of, a, of sacrifice or the sacrifice of this life is minimal compared to the eternal life, the, the eternal communion with God that we're all striving for. It's really the eternal union, not the temporal union. Uh, you're partially right on that, but it's also partially wrong because look, this is a valuable life here, and we're not just showing God that this life is worthless and we really don't care, but we care about the other one. Right? Because there, then we start to get in that removal, and what we quote from, you from, from the Holy Father, is that somehow the removal of good things from us is what God wants. What does God want? Union. Union with Him. He wants to share His life with us, and He wants us to share our life with Him. And the two shall become one. I read you about that about creation and worship at the center of the covenant. I'll continue that quote. Once again, we face the question. Pay attention to this. This is, this is it. Once again, we face the question, what is worship? What happens when we worship? In all religions, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. But this is a concept that has been buried under the debris of endless misunderstandings. The common view is that sacrifice has something to do with destruction. It means handing over to God a reality that, in some, that is in some way precious to man, right? Now this handing over presupposes it is withdrawn from use by man, and that, it can only, that can only happen through destruction. It's definitive removal from the hands of man. This is what we've heard, yes? Right. But this immediately raises the question, what pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? One answer is that the destruction always conceals within itself the act of acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things. But can such a mechanical act really serve God's glory? Obviously not. True surrender to God looks very different. It consists according to the fathers, 
in fidelity to biblical thought. It consists in the union of man in creation with God. Same thing we've been saying. Belonging to God has nothing to do with destruction or non-being. It is rather a way of being. It means emerging from the state of separation and apparent autonomy of existing only for oneself and in oneself. It means losing oneself as the only way, possible way of finding oneself. That is why St. Augustine could say that the true sacrifice is the city of God. That is, love transformed mankind. The divinization of creation and the surrender of all things to God. God all in all. That is the purpose of the world. That is the essence of sacrifice and worship. Okay? Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was writing that, says, uh, he talks about exitus and renitus. Exit and return. He says that when God, when God created, he gave forth from himself, the exitus, Think all things came forth from God, and man was the culmination of that creation, but man had a further end. And what was it? Yeah. And that return was to take place on the seventh day, the day of covenant. But man disobeyed God, and he broke off what should have been a return to God, taking all of creation and offering it back in love to the Father. <laughs> What Cardinal Ratzinger was saying is that true worship, true sacrifice, is all about restoring that covenant union by taking all things and giving them back to God, primarily the giving of our own life to God himself, in an act not of destruction, but in an act which brings about the true life of the thing we're offering. Its true end, its true purpose, the gift of everything in love to God. It has nothing to do with death and destruction, and it has everything to do with divinization, coming alive in God, coming alive in God himself. I gave you a handout last time. We have to look at it real quick. This one that had the kind of funny, I had a few of them back there this time. It has kind of a funny popping there. Can I see? This is Father Fitzmaier, who's a Pauline uh, scholar. <laughs> because it's really in St. Paul that the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament come forward. We sort of ask the question of the relationship between the slaughtering of animals in the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Stay with it. If he gets a little bit uh, heady here, just we'll stay with it and I'll let you know where the key parts are. A fuller meaning, you with me? A fuller meaning of the public manifestation of Christ in his blood is understood only when contemporary Jewish ideas are recalled that there is no expiation of sins without blood. It was not that blood shed and sacrifice pleased Yahweh, nor that the shedding of the blood and ensuing death were a recompense or price to be paid, which is what we oftentimes talk about Christ, right? 
Rather, the blood was shed either to purify and cleanse objects ritually dedicated to Yahweh's service or to consecrate, consecrate objects or persons to that service. They go to the, skip the, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkled the Kaporeb with blood because of the uncleanness of the Israelites and their transgression and all their sins. The underlying reason is found in Leviticus 17. The life of the flesh is in the blood, for it is the blood that expiates by reason of the life. And so on. Blood was identified with life because it's... Uh, sorry. Blood was identified with life itself because the nephesh, or the breath, was thought to be in the blood. When it ran out of, of a being, the nephesh, or the spirit, left. The blood shed in sacrifice was not then a vicarious punishment meted out on an animal instead of on the person who immolated it. Rather, the life of the animal was consecrated to God. It was a symbolic, this is the key, it was a symbolic dedication of the life of the person who sacrificed to Yahweh. It cleansed people of faults in Yahweh's sight and associated them once more with Yahweh. Christ's blood, shed in expiation of human sin, removed the sins that alienated human beings from God. Paul insists on the gracious and loving initiative of the Father and on the love of Christ himself in this action. He often says of Christ that he gave himself for us or for our sins and that he loved us through the death of Christ. Paul, along with all Christians, has been crucified with Christ so that we may live for God. It is not Pauline teaching that the Father willed the death of his Son to satisfy the debts owed to God or to the devil by human sinners. Lest Paul's statements, which are at times couched in juridical terminology, be forced into two rigid categories after the fashion of some patristic and scholastic commentators. One has to insist on the love of Christ involved in this activity. Paul did not theorize about the Christ event as did later theologians. He offers us not theories, but vivid metaphors, which can, if we let them, operate in our imagination, make real to us the saving truth of our redemption in Christ's self-offering on our behalf, and so on. What he's saying is that Christ's sacrifice has nothing to do with appeasing a bloodthirsty God, but rather about taking the seventh day and restoring what Adam was supposed to do in the beginning. Namely, recognizing who he was in relationship to God's own gift and giving that life back to God. Christ's death has nothing to do with appeasing the Father's justice, but everything about returning man to his proper relationship of self-gift to the Father. And that is at the very center of all of the Jewish sacrifices. To us in 2007, we look at the poor lamb. But if we look at it through Jewish eyes, what do we see? As, as Father Fitzmaier says, he offers us not theories, but vivid metaphors. The pouring out or the gift of the self to the Father through sacrifice. So I still want to say that Christ does satisfy God's justice. 
because otherwise, right, God is perfect in all his attributes, mm -hmm. and one of the things that God is is just, right, mm -hmm. then there has to be, justice has to be... Must no, be needed out. It has to actually, no, it has to be met. Justice and peace yeah. shall kiss, right? Yeah. And from the... Uh, the prophecy about the root of Jesse. Mm -hmm. Justice and peace. Okay, so actually, that was this morning. Um, All right, so let me, just for the sake of time, let me, I know, you guys, you understand what he's saying. God's perfectly just, and therefore, he's been offended, and therefore, justice has to be, first of all, what is justice? Definition of justice. It means that whatever is lost is made up for, right, a recompense. <clears throat> what do you mean made up for? I would say it's a pretty uh, human way of looking at it. Maybe a whole subhuman way of looking at it. Let me give you an example. My daughter does something wrong. And in justice, what do I do? I discipline her, but what is the reason for disciplining her? What is my goal in disciplining her? To do right. To live the way she's supposed to live. And unfortunately, oftentimes we look at God and we make him out to be this dislocated judge or ruler who is more vicious. What father would require the death of his son for something that his son didn't even do. Christ learned obedience through Hold what on. he suffered and having, having become thus perfected became right. the salvation of all. All right, so there's, there is an aspect here. I know, hold on. But what we, what we do is we set up a situation where we got one of the kids on the playground throwing the baseball through the neighbor's window, right? And, the, and then God turns around and pulls this other kid or his son off the field and beats him up for it and says, I can't believe this other guy did that. Well, where is the justice? And where is the justice in our understanding of justice in that, in a scale? Okay? Justice is giving to each his due. What is due to a thing is based upon what it is. And what is man but the living image of the living God? What is due to man is that he come to life in God, not that he die. The death of man is not just in the eyes of God. And that's why God steps down and takes it, the reins by the, or whatever you want to say, and turns the thing around to give man back that which is so necessary for him to be who he is. Namely, the life of God himself. So, I, I want to hold off a little bit on St. Paul's thing, because we have a whole series well, that's of Hebrews. That's not St. Paul. That's Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews? Yeah, letters to the Hebrews. Yeah, it's debatable. That's St. That, that's okay. Paul. Well, we don't, okay. So, anyways, I just uh, put that out there, and just keep in mind what Ratzinger is saying here. That sacrifice, because look, what we've done now. Everything is about restoring the covenant. The heart of the covenant is worship, which places us in the heart of the Jewish festival cycle. And the heart of worship is sacrifice. If we understand what sacrifice is, we'll understand why it is the center or the heart of worship, because worship is all about loving God, about spilling forth or giving our life over to God, giving Him our whole self. So that the two can be united in a self-gift of love. 
And in that, we meet the center of the covenant and we begin to understand that very maybe superficially, well, actually deeply, we start to understand what the sacrifice is, what all the festival uh, laws were all about. And now it's our job to go and look at those, understanding what God is trying to accomplish here, and start to see how Christ fulfills them by making those feasts come alive with the life of God himself. That each one of those feasts now joins in Christ, man to God. And as we celebrate the Christian festival cycle, it is an opportunity for us to enter into Christ's own activity, his own work, which joins man to God in himself. Does that make sense? No? Yes. Yes. Jennifer? Okay. All right, so you haven't used this word yet, right? Atonement. Mm-hmm. So she in theology for beginners breaks apart the word. I read it. To, I read it in one of my quotes. I think it's a it's a word that's fraught with misunderstanding. But she in mm-hmm. theology for beginners breaks it apart into three words: at one meant. Yeah, right. It makes us at one with God. That's okay. what atonement does. Okay. There you go. Right. Okay. It puts it in one word. Right. That's good. That's good. So I think that's a good point. That's actually a good point because it's a word that we oftentimes associate with God's slaughtering justice of death, right? right? Like, you've got to make atonement in that sense, right? Right. You're going to have to die. I'm going to kill you, in other words, in some sense, like, okay, that we create this whole theology about the justice of God as judge, as the just judge. But what I'm saying, as the just judge, look at it even in our, in our law system. We don't put somebody in jail in order to let them rot and die in jail. We put them in jail so that hopefully, by doing this to the person, somehow, whether it's right or wrong, we will bring about their restoration so that they can be re-entered into society. Okay? Yes? Are you sure we do that? Well, I'm saying that we we should. We should do that. That's our goal. We're Oftentimes it doesn't happen. Maybe we have to look at how we're punishing people. But that's exactly when I put my daughter in her room. It is not for her to go to her room that I'm putting her in her room. It's not because I'm angry with her. It shouldn't be that I'm angry with her that I'm putting her in her room. I'm putting her in her room so that she can come out of her room. Okay? All right. So, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Perhaps. Thank you. 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 We're going to spend a whole series, we're going to do a whole series on St. Paul, and we're not going to cover a lot of St. Paul in the series. Okay? His language is very difficult for us to understand, and so I do want to avoid him to a certain extent by saying, look, Cardinal Rassiano St. Paul, way better than all of us put together, I think. Okay? And he's still saying this. So I think it's just that our understanding of St. Paul might be a little skewed, and we've got to restore that, but that's going to take more time than we have. Okay? So let me um, finish real quick. Yeah, I can do this.
We talk then about the union, of the underlying union of all of the Old Testament, stretching all the way from creation to Christ. All of it is about one thing. We've talked about that over and over and over again. Why the change in law has to do with the state of man and where he's at. Has to do with what? Has to do with the state of man and where he's at. Why is it that God tells them to sacrifice has to do with where man is at. Okay? God does not change. And therefore, and we need to cover this real quick, so... When we start to look at the New Testament festivals, they look oftentimes like the Old Testament festivals, which have a parallel to the festival going on in creation. Because whenever God is reaching down to man to pull him up, the life of God is being revealed. And so we get a repetition from creation to the new creation. Okay? And there's a whole study of this called what? The study of types or typology. Okay? So that we get in the New Testament, as I said, a fulfillment or a perfection of all of the things that happened in the Old Testament. Okay? When God sets a new law within man, it's not a different law. It's the same law in his heart. So now man is going to be fulfilling the law, doing what the law prescribes, in its perfection or in its fulfillment. The fathers tell us then there will be a new exodus. So this Old Testament tells us there will be a new exodus. There will be a new Passover. There will be a new Feast of Tabernacles. There will be a new Pentecost. Unfortunately for us, as we're looking at our Christian festal cycle, we dislocate it from the Jewish festal cycle. And so what we look at is something that we just totally don't understand. First of all, we don't look at the root of what's underlying what we're doing, and that is union with God. But not only that, we have a second difficulty. And it's the thing that really hits home with Catholics, I think, a lot of times, is that we don't look at the pattern by which God has acted in the Old Testament. So when we do things today in the church, they look strange to us. We don't understand why we're doing them because they're not rooted in the reason of God in the Old Testament. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. I'll finish with this quote, Cardinal Jean Danielou. Because they are not understood, the rites of the sacraments often seem to the faithful to be artificial and sometimes even shocking. It is only by discovering their meaning that the value of these rites will once more be appreciated. For this symbolism is not subject to the whims of each interpreter. It constitutes a common tradition going back to the apostolic age. And what is striking about this tradition is its biblical character. It is then the meaning and the origin of this biblical symbolism that we must first make clear. Here, the recent studies on the history of the liturgical origins are of service to us. For they, ha they have established that we must look to the liturgy of, Ju of Judaism. We must therefore ask ourselves the question, what significance did the signs used in the Jewish liturgy hold for the Jews of the time of Christ and for Christ himself? It is also quite evident that the mentality of the Jews and of Christ was formed by the Old Testament. Consequently, it is in studying the significance of the Old Testament and the different elements used in the sacraments 
that we have the best method of discovering their significance for Christ and the apostles. When we dislocate what we're doing in that church from the Old Testament, we're not going to have a clue what's going on. Yeah, for us sitting in this room right now, we might know it's about union with God. But why we're dunking a baby underwater? We can start to build a bad theology based upon our vision of 2007 of what's taking place instead of a vision of Christ and the apostles and their realities taking place in the Old Testament. And that's why it's essential as we look at Passover, as we look at Easter, to look at the first Passover, to ask what it's about and what signs are being used to understand what's going on in our church today. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so look, next time, here's what we're going to do. You read this thing over, and we're going to look quickly. 45 minutes an hour, what are you going to do? Quickly, we're going to look at the three major feasts of Israel. Old Testament and New Testament fulfillment. Keep it in mind all the things we've talked about. Okay? All right, thank you very much. Let's conclude the prayer. We'll face the east again. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without ending. St. John the Beloved, pray for us. Amen.